Um, we all got our Bibles unless we're out of them. Cool. Romans 14. Father in heaven, our great, glorious God, in such a lofty high place called heaven, and yet you came down to the very depths, the lowest places of this earth. You're pulled down by such a strong force of love. Lord, we're so grateful for that love. And then that love didn't just pull you down to earth, but it held you upon the cross. And we can gaze upon the cross. We can take communion and remember how much you have given for us. And so, Jesus, we want you to steal our hearts tonight. To absolutely captivate us. I pray that your Holy Spirit descends upon our meetings and that the words that I have labored to study would come and be used by your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts about your very heart, Father. Lord, I pray that you help us with these difficult lessons in Romans. Give us love for each other that we may express our love for you in that way. Lead us not into temptation, Lord. May your word guide us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Romans chapter 14. St. Augustine was an early, early theologian in the church, about 300 A.D. And he said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in everything else, charity. What do we mean by that? Well, in the things that matter, essentials, we must have unity. But non-essentials, the bathable things. Ah, liberty, we're free to do what we please. But in all things considered, we must have charity or love for one another. And what he basically means in saying that, guys, is there are disputes amongst us, there are difficulties within the church that the Bible necessarily doesn't address in regards to our culture. And he wants to say, and the passage tonight wants to say, that we need to agree when we disagree. And that in the way we disagree, we need to disagree in an agreeable manner, rather than disagreeing in a disagreeable manner like Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher in England in the 18th century, and his friend, uh, Mr. Parker. Now, they were good friends early in their ministry, way back in England in the day, a couple hundred years ago. And they would actually share pulpits with each other, speak at each other's churches, help each other, great friends in the Lord. But one day, a sharp dispute came in between them and the dispute was so severe, it actually made its way into the papers, and they no longer were helping each other, sharing each other's pulpit. The dispute was this. Mr. Parker liked going to the theater, something which Spurgeon considered highly unspiritual. <laughs> Yet, Mr. Spurgeon smoked cigars, something which, even to this day, many Christians don't look at very highly. So, who is right? Who was wrong? I suggest both of them were wrong in handling their disagreement in such a disagreeable manner that it hit the newspapers and the word is spread. 
You see, we need to learn when we disagree to agree rather than to divide. That's a bad option to decide. <laughs> so, agree to disagree. A lot of issues in the church. As we look at Romans 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Now, we are in the section of Romans. Oh, guys, catch this. This is trippy. I just did the math. I was looking on my iCal on my computer, and I was um, I was mapping out when we're going to finish Romans, and it looks like it's going to be right at the new year. We'll be done. And so as I was doing that, I said, I wonder when we started Romans. So I go back, not six months, not eight months, <laughs> not nine months. I go back 12 whole months and find out that we did Romans chapter 3 in December of 2009. And if you map out from Romans 3 to Romans 1, we probably started sometime in October. So we're at the one year point, which I think is crazy. I don't know. It just that's, I don't know where time goes. We're at the one year point, and by the time we end, we'll be in Romans for over a year and three months. I didn't know I could do that. I heard my um, one of my teachers at school taught Romans for, he gave um, 300 teachings in the book of Romans, which is like five years or something. And then this other guy has ten books. Ten books of writings on Romans. I'm like, whoa. I I'm like, those guys are crazy. But, oh my gosh, here we are at a year. Anyways, I thought that was crazy. Um, we, um, of course, I'm not here every single week. So, of course, it's probably not exactly that long. But anyways, isn't that crazy? So we're coming to the home stretch. And the reason I mention all that is because some of you, I'm very sure, have no, don't even have the faintest recollection of the beginning of Romans. And, and, and a lot of you weren't ever even, you didn't even know that this happened. <laughs> um, how many of you, just out of question, were here back when we started Romans chapter 1? Wow. Um, how many of you would say that you were actually consistently, that, that being about every other week or so, here through that time? That's, a couple of you are Roman scholars. That's awesome. Well, John, why don't you come up and tell us about... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> He's like, crap, I didn't mean to raise my hand. So, the first eight chapters, we looked at as this big court case where... Um, Basically, man is on trial for a sin. And God shows how through Jesus Christ we can be justified. We don't have to be punished for our sin because of what Jesus did. And Paul goes to argue, it's by faith in him that this happens. And then the case closes that nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's how chapter 8 ends. Then these three weird chapters, 9 through 11... Address, address this issue of Israel and it talks about what with Israel if we the church can actually be forgiven and trust God's word and his promises how do we justify the fact that Israel doesn't even believe in Jesus how can there really be a true gospel and they are just completely God's own people disregarded well we looked at that how it's all part of God's plan their rejection of Jesus he sets them aside deals with us, Gentile church, and then we'll be raptured one day, and then he'll take the Jews back, and then bring them to salvation. 
that'll happen during the Great Tribulation period. Remember, you Roman scholars, that illustration, the pie that Aunt Ruby and Aunt Pearl started. Good, I see some heads dropping. That means you remember. Basically, you cut the tip off, you save it for a blessing, eat the rest of the pie, then eat the tip, and you make your wish. Well, God cut the tip, the Jews off, put them aside, dealing with the rest of the pie, us Gentiles, when we're done and we're all saved, he returns to the tip of the pie, and Israel will be saved. So, then you come to Romans 12, and you come to the last section of the book. And uh, Paul basically says, look, you found out that through Jesus Christ, you're justified, you're sanctified, you're glorified. Glorious words indeed. And we saw the issue with Israel. Now with all this said and done, it's time to apply it to our lives. So, Romans 12. How do we conduct ourselves as a church within this body? Well, God's given us gifts where to use them to express love and glorify God with them. Romans 13. How do we handle ourselves out there in the world in society with government? Well, we are to pay our taxes, we're to honor the king, and realize that God has set all the kings in charge, and we're to love one another in society. Now, see, you've all taken the course, the one-year course. Now we come to Romans 14, and now Paul's addressing how do we deal with judgmentalism in the church? What does it mean to judge someone? Because that often has a negative connotation, when in actuality it could have a positive connotation. Well, according to the Oxford Dictionary, to judge means to come to an opinion about someone or something. You formulate an opinion, you come to a conclusion. So to judge simply means that I look at the World Series that just ended between the Rangers and the Giants, thanks to someone that brought that up, it's in my head now, <laughs> and I look at that and I come to the conclusion that the Giants were clearly the better team because they won the World Series. Now, I judge them. Is that a bad thing? That's an honest thing. However, when the Bible speaks of judgment amongst Christians, it's usually used in a bad sense because we are bad people and we generally don't look at him and think, my, judging from his height, it must mean he's full of love. <laughs> we, instead, we look at Tim and think, where's Stephen? <laughs> that, that little loser's skipping out on church. What is up with that? He, we need to pray for him. He's sinning right now. No, you know? But that's like, obviously, that's totally not true. But, but obviously, but that's like how our nature is. We begin to judge. We formulate these bad opinions about each other, especially when there's issues of difference. Issues that are gray. There's, there's black and white in the Bible and it's very clear. But there's some issues in society that the Bible doesn't address. And what do we do with those? Because some of us are split down the middle on some of these issues. And how do we agree to disagree? How do we keep ourselves from judging you because you have this liberty in Christ and judging you because you're such a strict legalist? How do we not judge each other? Well, this is what this chapter describes. And it basically is going to say this. We prevent judgment amongst one another when we learn to see each other as belonging not to each other, but belonging to Jesus. When we see that each other belong to Jesus, our judgmentalism will go down and we will learn to agree to disagree. There will be unity. 
And Romans 14, verses 1 through 12, paint this relationship belonging to Jesus in three ways. There's three relationships here, okay? The first is that we need to see people as belonging to Jesus as a doctor. Dr. Jesus is our first section. Look at, we'll go back to verse 1 now. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Now, who is this weak one in the faith? Yes, that could be one. And, more than just new believers, one who's weak in the faith, which typically young believers have this, they have a strong standard regarding gray issues. Alright, we'll develop this as we go, so don't get too lost. The weak in the faith have a strong, severe standard concerning gray issues. Strong in the faith have a weaker standard concerning these issues. Now Paul says these weak ones, these ones that have these big, strong, legalistic standards that might even make you feel so inferior because they have all these rules and they need to keep their life so regimented because they're so worried about straying from Christ and stuff. He says, accept them. They might have standards that, and they might make you feel like you're guilty because you don't have the same standards as they do, but accept them. Okay, we'll accept them. We're going to change them. We're going to show them how to have liberty in Christ. No, Paul says, but don't accept them to quarrel with them. What is it with us that we love to play this game, we're going to change John and make him like Brandon. We're going to change Matt and just make him like everyone else in here. We want to change Christine because she's just so different than me. What, what is that with us? See, we would rather change people than to change ourselves, wouldn't we? Well, maybe two reasons. The first is our sin, our own sin. You see, back in the garden with Adam and Eve, the very first sin was when Satan said to Eve, you want to be like God? Eat the fruit, you will be like God. And really at the core of every sin, that is at the heart of our sin, is that we want to be like God. Whoa, 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 I, I never imagined that I want the throne in heaven and the control of the world. And <laughs> But on a smaller scale, that's what you do when you sin. You say to God, you know what, for now, I'm going to control my life and my decision and I'm going to sin. That's what sin is. You become your God of your universe, of your life. Now, being gods when we sin, we have this tendency to want to be procreators like God is. And what did God do? Well, He created us in His image. So then we start to say, Ah, I want to create other people in my image. It's this manipulative thing. It's our sin nature where we want to know we have control over people. We want them to look like us. Them to become part of our image. Let's change them. Those standards don't need to be there. You need to be stricter here. Way too loose in your life. Well, the second problem is our own personal struggles. Jesus talked about the log in our eye and the plank in other people's eyes. Why is it that we so quickly see a plank and we don't notice our own log? Because usually the plank in other people's eyes is the same thing that's in our eyes, just in a much smaller form. See, the things we struggle with, we're so quick to see in other people. I'm so quick to see um, people that are impatient because sometimes I realize I'm very impatient. 
Uh, rudeness is one that gets to me, but I realize how many times when I'm honest with myself, I am the exact same way. So our own struggles make us want to change people because we don't like seeing ourselves in them. So accept them, but don't change them. Don't quarrel with them. It's accepting them. You have a doctor, Jesus, who knows what they need and he'll take care of them. In verse 2, we read about the weak person. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So now we're getting some insight. Culturally, that's so weird. We're not talking about vegetarians necessarily. So if you're a vegetarian here, I'm sorry for you, but <laughs> this is not the issue. In the Roman church, there were vast marketplaces that sold meat for discounted prices. Now, the Jews said, Woohoo! What a bargain! Market meat! Let's get it! Let's eat it! And so they ate it. But the Gentile believers who came out of paganism looked at the Jews eating that market meat and said, Whoa, 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 you can't do that. That's not market meat. That's marked meat. What do you mean? You don't know what has happened to that meat. You can't eat that. That was sacrificed to an idol yesterday. You're eating pagan meat. You're going to be demon possessed. You're sinning. You have to abstain from that. But to the Jew, who has no clue about that pagan lifestyle, are they concerned with meat being sacrificed to idols? They probably never thought twice about it. Yet the Gentile said, Whoa, whoa, I can't know. Whoa, I know because everything, his conscience is defiled by it. Is this a sin or non-sin issue? It really doesn't matter, as Chris is nodding. It doesn't matter at all. Yet, you see the temptation in the church. You have the weak Christians saying, You cannot do that. No way. And they have the stronger Christians, not strong spiritually, but strong, remember, in their standards. Um, the strong Christians who are looser in their standards say, You can eat whatever you want. Well, should we divide over this or agree to disagree? Now, Jesus is our doctor. I'll get to that in a second. What are some issues we have in the church today? There are some major gray areas. We don't have this meat issue. We're not sacrificing meat to President Obama. That would be weird. I wouldn't eat it probably, but... Um, we do have other things. I Maybe you guys can think of them. I, I wrote down this list for myself so I would um, remember some of them. Someone get nervous in front of you guys and forget. Um, how about dating? I bring that up. And there's some of you in here who have strong standards against dating. That's great. I know I'm kind of, I encourage that because there's a lot of heartache that comes with it. But on the flip side, others of you say, there's no, I have no problem with dating, liberty in Christ. And well, okay. You know, is, is this a sin issue? Absolutely not. Now, in my preference, I might lean one way or the other, but should I make a big deal about it? Should I start condemning people who are dating? That would be opposite of letting people be diagnosed by Jesus himself. Jesus knows what we need. We're to ask him, our doctor, what will work in our life. How about smoking? Now, this doesn't really apply to most of us, but it's an issue in the church. Some Christians see smoking as sin. I know great Christians who smoke. Should we divide over this? Absolutely not. It's a non-essential issue. <laughs> um, this is actually a big one you, especially with youth ministry you get girls complaining all the time how about bikinis 
You, know, you guys know the famous church rules that they're not allowed. You have to have the whole one piece or wear a shirt and stuff. Well, if people like, that's not fair, but on the other hand, it's going to help your guys be more spiritual, trust me. Now, is this a sin issue? It could lead to one, but in and of itself, you know, there's it, it all these issues. Um, of course, at church functions, I think we have the good rule for reason, but we're talking about in your own time. Some girls feel like sinners if they wear bikinis. They have, they've never even owned one. Um, holidays. Holidays. Yeah, what about Halloween? Have you guys heard all the debate? Has anyone told you that you shouldn't go trick-or-treating or sinner for it and stuff? I'm sure you've had the talk before. You know, um, hey, good people take each side. Is it really worth considering sin or no sin? Um, music. There's a debate. Christian only versus secular and Christian. Movies. Yeah, they're all thinking now. Alcohol. Now, at your age, this is definitely sin. It's illegal. However, can you drink as a Christian? Obviously, you can't get drunk. That's black and white. But what about just drinking a glass of wine with dinner? Some would condemn you if they saw a glass of wine at your dinner. And you, some of you might know people like that. But you know what? I know great Christians who drink a glass of wine at dinner. Are they sinners? Um, how about politics? Let's not get there. <laughs> how about worship? Hymns versus contemporary. Standing versus sitting and all that stuff. Um, tattoos. I think this generation is much more accepting of them, but you guys know your parents' generation. Whoa, no. You are not getting a tattoo. You are out of the house if you do. Well, some of the issues. Guys, how do we address and how do we keep ourselves from judging each other on these? Jesus is the doctor. Verse 3 paints this for us. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed them. You see, God has welcomed him. Um, we are all the patients of Jesus. He knows, Christian, what standards you need to have a fruitful walk with him. For you, it might be a strict, strong standard. I will not date. I will not listen to second. You know, you're very, very regimented on your standards. But then for you, it might be that Jesus knows you just need liberty. Yet, don't use your liberty for an opportunity in the flesh. He knows our needs. He knows what diet you need, Christian. He can give it to you. So, a diabetic and someone with that can't eat gluten. Do they have the same diet? Absolutely not. Uh, if you don't know what gluten is, it's like this German wheat. So they basically can't eat wheat. Which really sucks. It's in everything. <laughs> um, no. How, how ludicrous would it be for me to come to Tim and say, Tim, you really shouldn't be doing that or you really need to be doing this when Tim said, well, how do you know what Jesus prescribed for me? He's my doctor. He's leading me how to live. That'd be like you coming to a diabetic and saying, whoa, 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 what's up with this no, like, carb thing? You need to eat more carbs and sugar, okay? And you're just talking from your experience. Well, you're going to kill him. We, <laughs> we need to let Jesus be the doctor over different Christians, and therefore these big issues that we create are really non-issues. So, that's the first relationship. See Jesus as the doctor. Secondly, see Jesus as the master. 
Ah, Master Jesus. Verse 4. Oh, wow. Thank you. I guess that's a compliment. Verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Who are you to judge another master's servant? I think that is very obvious, isn't it? Because if you go to Disneyland and you go on the Tower of Terror, the employees there on that ride have a very peculiar demeanor about them, don't they? What What is it? Oh, you've never been? Oh, well. Um, basically, they don't smile. They look at you like you're about to die. It's a very scary ride. And they do have no fluctuation. It's monotone. You feel like they can care less about you. And that's what their master, Disney, tells them to do. Or California Adventure, which is Disney, but whatever. Um, now, if you take that person, that servant, and insert him in Starbucks, he's going to get fired on day one. You can't say, what do you want to drink? I hope it kills you. You just can't do that. At Starbucks, you have to be, hi, welcome to Starbucks. How may I help you? You know, it's like all like, woo, we're on caffeine here. You know? See, the, the difference, uh, my sister works at Starbucks. The difference is one servant is required by his master to do one thing. Another servant is required by his master to do another thing. Jesus is our master, and he is leading each of us as his servants to serve him uniquely and separately. I'm not your master. I can't tell you to break up with her or him. I might say it's wiser or whatever or have my opinions, but I am not your master. Jesus is your master. And it's up to us to listen to him and to serve him faithfully. Now, um, when it says that Jesus is able to make him, he, he will be upheld, so the Lord is able to make him stand, I love that because, you know what? The people I can't stand, Jesus can stand. The, the standards I don't understand, Jesus understands perfectly. Why? Because Jesus is leading him to serve him in such a way. So who are we to judge each other as servants of a, of a master? We're all led by the Lord to have different standards per se. And in verse 5, one person, here's another example in the church that's going on there. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another person esteems all days alike. But each should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, they were debating, Jews, Saturday is the Sabbath, holy day. Gentiles, but Sunday is the day the Lord rose. Which day do we worship the Lord on? Is it really an issue? Is it a sin problem? Absolutely not. Now, to modernize this, I mentioned it before, but Halloween, holidays, even Christmas and Easter, there are people that will make you feel bad for trick-or-treating, for dressing up in a costume. Then there are other people that say, look, I understand the history of Halloween that's completely pagan, that dressing up as a whole thing to just like look like a demon so demons didn't scare you and spirits and stuff, but I have made it 
in a conscious choice that I'm not partaking that. It's just a dressing up societal practice. But other people say, yeah, but, I mean, I had a lot of good conversations this year with a lot of good people about this, and there's different opinions. It's great. It's really interesting to talk to people about this. You just try it sometimes. But other great people say, okay, I understand that that's your motive, but I just don't want to have any part of it. I believe as a trick we're called to be separate, and I want to just have no part of wickedness and, you know, totally different standards. Well, who's right? Who's wrong? How we handle our differences is what determines who's right and wrong. The decision itself, Paul just said, let each be convinced in his own mind. Let Jesus, your master, tell you what you should do. Don't let me, don't let your neighbor, don't let other people put a guilt trip on you. That's not being fully convinced in your own mind. That's not listening to Jesus. That's letting other people be your master. Listen to Jesus. Because if you don't, well, verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and, uh, in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. You see, whatever route you take, abstaining, eating, this day or all days, whatever route on all these gray issues, Paul says, do it in honor of the Lord and give thanks. If Jesus, your master, tells you how he wants you to serve him, and you're fully convinced in your mind about that, and you do it, you can do it with thanksgiving. Lord, I thank you that I have a bucket full of candy. It's so wonderful to have liberty in Christ about this. And then the other person, Lord, I thank you that I don't have to feel obligated to be part of the whole Halloween thing. I get to just worship you tonight instead. You know, there's just two different standards, and each person can thank God because Jesus said, Hey, you can do this, my servant. You can do this, my servant. However, if you're not fully convinced in your mind, and I allow Tim to influence me, well, you know, you should only listen to Christian music. Secular music is just going to wreck your mind. And you know, you start giving me this lecture and go, oh my gosh, and I'm so convicted. And I'm like, yes, you're right, Tim. Only Christian music. Well, it's going to be really hard for me to do that with thanks. Rather than having a grateful attitude, oh Lord, thank you for only Christian music, I'll be like, oh, do I really have to do this, Lord? See, rather than being grateful, I'm going to start grumbling. When we allow Jesus to be our master and we're fully convinced in our mind, you can take whatever standard, whether it be severe or easy, and be completely thankful to the Lord. Completely thankful to the Lord in those things. Um, verse 7. None of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, in summary, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord. He's our master. Whatever route you're taking, he's your master. Verse 9. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Jesus is your master and he paid a heavy price for it. Therefore, don't make yourself a master of someone else and inflict upon them your more righteous than thou standards, or I have more freedom than you standards. Don't be each other's master. Jesus paid a big price to be your master. 
let him be the master. Now the third relationship that helps us not to judge each other. Yes, Jesus is the doctor. He is the master. But he is also and climatically the judge. He is the judge. Therefore, Christian, judge not, lest you take his place. You see, when I react as a judge against my brother, I am detracting from the judge. When I pass judgment on you, I am attempting to surpass the judge. He is the judge. Leave it in his hands. We are respondents to him, the judge. And at the end, whatever and however we choose to live in gray areas, each and every one of us has to answer individually before Jesus Christ himself, as verse 10 through 12 demonstrates. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother about these issues? For we with all, or we will all, stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, he quotes Isaiah, As I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. <coughs> Don't judge each other. First of all, he's judge. Second of all, how do you know what Jesus wants? Think about that. There was a rich young ruler who once came to Jesus and said, Hey, what must I do to attain eternal life? And after boasting about all of the laws he kept perfectly, Jesus just shook his head and smiled and said, Ah, but have you given everything you have to the poor? and the young man just walked away dejected and sad and as he turned and walked away Jesus turned to his disciples and said you see that understand this Matthew 19.30 that he who is first will be last and he who is last will be first I can just see the disciples that was the strangest episode this guy was perfect kept the law and Jesus said but you're not perfect enough we don't get it. And then Jesus turned and said, yeah, but first shall be last, last shall be first. The point is, disciples, you shouldn't get it because I operate on a completely different standard than you do. As Isaiah 55 says, for my ways, or my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. God thinks and acts and judges and has a standard so differently than ours. So how can we become judges as if we know God's standard? So Paul's saying, look, Every one of us, verse 12, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Peter was talking with Jesus, John chapter 21. Jesus said, Peter, this is how you're going to die. You'll be crucified upside down, we believe is what he was saying. And Peter goes, oh. <laughs> and pointing over at John, he says, what about him? And Jesus says, What is that to thee? Follow thou me. What is that to you, Peter? You're supposed to follow me. You, you, Peter, you will give an account of yourself to me at the end. 
Not John. You're not going to give an account for John. John will give his own account to me. What is it to you about how each other express their liberty or their standards? How each other express these gray areas, these debatable things? We're not going to stand before God and say, when God says, you know what? You know that secular music just killed your soul. It totally dragged you down into this lifestyle worldliness. And you're going to sit there and say, yeah, yeah, but, 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 but Pete, Peter, uh, Peter was able to do it, so, you know, I thought that I'd be okay. But Jesus will look at you and say, but didn't you realize that Peter was serving a different operation than you were? I'm your doctor, your master, your judge. You're supposed to come to me and find all that out. See, each of us will give our own account to Jesus at the end. Not say, but, but them. We're not going to compare. It's you and Jesus. We have this relationship according to these standards as our doctor, as our master, as our judge. Now, don't be worried, Christian. This judgment it speaks of is not for your sin. You're justified according to Romans. It's dealt with. This judgment is for your works. Did you love God by loving people? Did you glorify God by using your gifts? Did you bear fruit by following the Spirit? Those kinds of works. Each man will give a record according to himself. Oh, how we should just let Jesus be the judge. We would stop judging each other. We would stop dividing or just like, ah, oh, them and all these standards. These great areas would just, look, Christians, it's a, let's just love each other. If we let him be judged. You see, when you have a judge, things are easy. Disputes end, aren't, don't they? Well, you can dispute with the judge, but go ahead. You can argue with God. That's your problem, not mine. But judges make... And let me tell you the story. Um, Tam knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, there's this infamous play in one of my many insane, crazy games of my illustrious wiffle ball career. Oh, yeah, that's right. I have a wiffle ball career. <laughs> so, anyways, there is this infamous play. We refer to it as Renshaw Hill. Now, let me explain what happened in this game. My team batted a ball that trickled a foul ball that trickled up this hill. See, this hill bordered the third baseline, pretty much paralleled it. It trickled up this hill, and then it started to roll down into fair territory and sat there, and the runner got to first. Well, their team said, whoa, 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 foul ball, foul ball. It, it went up on the hill. My team said, whoa, whoa, fair ball, fair ball. It trickled back into fair territory, which in baseball, if that happens, it's a still a fair ball. So, but there was this big debate. And we started to go back and forth. Yeah, yeah, we know that if a ball comes back into fair territory, it's fair, but there's not usually a hill on a baseball field, okay? And we said, yeah, but there could be, and it is a fair ball because it rolled back in. We went back and forth, I kid you not, for 30 minutes. Teams fighting with teams, disagreeing, and we were so divided on the issue, and it was ridiculous. Some of us are like, can we just play baseball again? Can we please just keep the game going? Others are like, well, no, we have to solve this now. And, you know, the disagreement went and the war was raged. And you know how it would have been settled very easily on the spot? <laughs> Not even that because, <laughs> exactly, an umpire, a judge, someone who would just stand there and say, peace. I say... And he makes the call, and it settles it. Now, you can argue with the umpire, the judge, if you want, but it's settled. We are going to move on, regardless if you agree or not. 
That's why we need Jesus to be the judge, because our disputes and our disagreements, we can learn to agree because we say, oh, Jesus said it. I can go with it. You can argue Jesus if you want. Just don't, though. Okay? He's the judge. He's right. He's just right. So how do we learn to agree to disagree? How do we, in essentials, have unity, non-essentials, have liberty, and then in all the rest, have charity? How do we disagree agreeably without it getting ugly? How do we decide not to divide over these issues? Very simply, learn to see people as belonging not to you, but to Jesus. He is their doctor. He's prescribing their medication, not you. He is their master. He's telling them how he wants them to serve him, not you. He ultimately is the judge, and he will make the fair call at the end, not you. So with that in mind, Christian, we don't have to be like Spurgeon and Parker and say, oh, theater, oh, cigars. We can say, you know what? I can't do the theater. It's personally not a spiritual thing for me. Oh, I can't smoke cigars. I just really think that's disgusting. But they're not essential items. They're not essential. So let's have unity. Let's come together. I don't have to go to the theater with you. I don't have to smoke with you. Good. But Jesus is your doctor, your master, your judge as yours. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to judge you. So we can agree to disagree. And that's the point. That's the point of Romans 14. So, let us now pray. (laughs) Lord God, we are so thankful that you give us practical advice for hard times in life, Lord. Um, Jesus, there's a lot of issues that we just don't know what to do on. Your word's not exactly clear on some of these things we've listed. And God, We know some people that take one stance and others that take another. May we not be persuaded by what man tells us, but Lord, convince us in our own minds. Jesus, we want you to be our doctor to show us what's good for us. We want you to be our master to tell us what you want us to do. And we want you to be our judge so that we know that we're accountable to you and you alone. So Lord, help us to agree to disagree. And for those of us that don't know where we stand on particular issues, lead us. Be our master. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.